1961, a guy named Adolf Eichmann was captured. He was put on trial for war crimes from World War II. Eichmann, I'm sorry, yeah, Eichmann was a, Nerm, a German Nazi, a German John, John uh, a, a German Nazi SS lieutenant colonel, and he was, he was actually the mastermind behind the death camps, behind uh, Jewish genocide. And during his trial, they had a a death camp survivor come and testify against him, and his name was Yehiel Diner. And Yehiel Diner walked into this courtroom, and you can understand uh, this is maybe 12, 15 years after uh, he had gone through all of these atrocities himself, and he looks at his oppressor, and you can imagine the kind of things that comes flooding to his mind Um, that this oppressor was responsible for. And so, he walks into this courtroom, and he sees Eichmann for the first time in all those years, and he immediately drops to the floor, sobbing, just in a heap, falling apart. Twenty-two years after that day, Mike Wallace interviewed Yehiel Diner and showed him a clip of when he had come into the courtroom And he had seen Eichmann, and he had fallen into a a heap. And he asked, what was going through your mind when that happened? Why did you collapse? Was Was it hatred? Was it that you were overwhelmed with hate, with revenge? Was it fear in the presence of your, of your former oppressor and persecutor? And Yehiel really startled everyone with his answer, including Wallace himself. He said, no, no, no. Here's what you need to know overwhelmed me. He said, I came in, and I looked at Eichmann, and I realized this person is not a demon. This person is not Superman. This person is just like me. And if he's capable of doing all the things that he did, so am I. And then he uttered the line that has kind of echoed from that interview. He said this, Eichmann is in all of us. And so, what Yehiel Diner realized is that as he faced his worst nightmare, he was realizing that he was really facing himself. Eichmann is in all of us. We are all capable of things that we cannot even imagine. And so, the Bible says that's exactly right. What Eichmann gave to the world, his sin, and what Diner felt in his heart, that's in all of us. We are all capable. If we go to Genesis chapter 3, which is where we're going to spend some time today, we find this famous account of the first man and the first woman that God created and, and the perfect garden that God made for them, after, and He put them in the garden after He creates the world. And they are one with God, but then in Genesis chapter 3, we read of them losing this oneness with God, and they lose oneness with themselves. They're filled with shame. They, they don't know who they really are. They lose their oneness with each other and they start hiding not only from God but from each other. And theologians have a really huge term, uh, theological term for this uh, event. Let's see if you can catch it. It's called the fall. Just, Just make your mouth really big, ah, say ah, and put an F at the beginning of it, the fall. You can work on that this week. 
Maybe you'll be quicker at it than me. Uh, the important thing to realize today is that this book, this Scripture, that we look at every week is just not outdated. It, 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 it's relevant to today. That's why we keep going back to it, because this ancient story tells us how to navigate today. What Adam and Eve went through is what we will go through today. The way Adam and Eve screwed up their lives, we will do that same thing if we don't look at what made them fall and see if we can learn something from that so that we can avoid falling ourselves. So we're starting a new series today called Getting Right with God, and we are uh, continuing our journey through Core 52 for the year, and this week you will read chapter 3. It's called The Fall. (laughs) You already got it? Good. Um, And one other challenge that we would love for you to take up is to actually read along with Um, the core 52 chapters in this series, actually read the book of Romans, because the book of Romans echoes a lot of the themes that we will cover. Sometimes we will actually take the sermon straight from Romans, but if we don't do that, we will at least refer to it because there's so much that overlaps. So, if you'll just take a couple chapters each week of Romans and read with us. So, let's let's set the scene as we lead up to Genesis chapter 3. What we have in Genesis chapter 1 is a God who creates. And the emphasis in chapter 1 is on God's transcendence, that He is huge. He's big. He's over everything. He's stretching out the universe with His hands. He's in charge. He's transcendent. He's ineffable, as one of our hymns says. He's preeminent. And then in chapter 2, we see a God who also creates, but we see a very different side of God. The emphasis on, is on the imminence of God, which means that He's in everything. He's a part of everything. He's, just not, he's not just over, but He's in everything. He gets His hands dirty. He forms the man from the ground. He breathes life into him. He plants a garden. He talks with the man. He works with the man. He's very relational. And so, he, this creator who is transcendent and eminent um, creates this perfect place, and everything is good. And in the middle of that perfect place, he puts a man and a woman, and they're naked, and he gives them a directive to be fruitful, have fun, play. You can do anything. There's just one rule. There's not 10. There's not 613, like we talked about a couple weeks, just one. You can do anything otherwise that you think of, but just this one rule. Now, what would you call that? Paradise. That's, that's paradise. We're all trying to recreate what they had. And this one rule wasn't even a hard rule. I mean, not to me. In chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, God says, you can have every tree in the garden, but this one. There's one in the middle. There's one that if you eat of its fruit, if you even touch it, you'll die. And so, I want you to imagine that Fort Scott is the Garden of Eden, okay? And I don't know how big the Garden of Eden was, but, you know, Fort Scott's kind of small. Maybe the Garden of Eden was uh, this kind of size. And God would say to us, do whatever you want in Fort Scott, America. It's going to be great. But if you go to 7th and Holbrook, there's a pear tree there. And I need you to leave that pear tree alone or you'll die. That's it? Is that all I have to do? Uh, do, I, do I need to watch uh, my sugar intake? Do I need to do some cardio? 
what, what about trans fats? Do I need to stay away from them? Nope, nope, just one rule. Seventh and Holbrook, pear tree, don't go there. Okay, I can do that. That seems doable. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has, had made. Who is the serpent? Uh, when people look at the Bible and study the Bible, and there's all kinds of other scripture that tells us that the serpent is a physical representation of Satan himself, the devil, or evil in the world. He is Eichmann in all of us here. And he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of any tree in the garden. And first, I need you to note how Satan operates because it's the exact way that he will operate with you even today. Note how he talks. Uh, the Hebrew is phrased in such a way that it indicates that he is talking with sarcasm. Uh, maybe somebody will say to you, how was your day? And you'll say, great, just great. Do you really mean it was great? No, not at all. You mean it was horrible, but you use the word great, and that's what's going on with Satan here. The snake says, did he really say that? That you could eat from any tree of the garden? It's a mocking, sarcastic tone. And, and here's what a mocking, sarcastic tone introduces for the first time in Eve's mind, doubt. You see, they had had one rule, and it was an unchangeable given that God had laid down. And until this moment, it was in force. It was immovable. And now, in this mocking tone, Satan implies that this one rule might be optional. And that's what throws Eve. It's possible, Eve just to ignore the claims of God. She'd never entertained that before. And again, here's Satan's tone. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, tree, uh, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, in the middle, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God, did he really say that? No way, you're kidding me. I mean, he said you couldn't eat the trees in your own garden. It's your garden and you're not going to die. Come on. He knows you're not going to die. In fact, you'll know more than ever and the wheels start turning in Eve's head. And this is the beginning of everything going wrong. And I need you to note that Satan isn't as much relying on an argument with Eve as much as he's creating an atmosphere against God. An incredulous snicker. It's a cynical sneer. And nothing has changed from the garden. From the garden to today, Satan is still trying to create an atmosphere in which we begin to question God. And here's how it goes for you and me today. Hold, hold, hold on. You went to college, right? <laughs> and you're, you're taking this scripture thing seriously? This book, this, I mean, it's been disproved. I mean, who are you? You're smart, aren't you? And you're, you're still buying this, this idea that somebody walked out of a grave, resurrected? You read books, right? I've seen you read books. 
then how are you not seeing that what you believe is a direct correlation to where you were born? If you were born somebody, somewhere else, you would believe something else. And that's how it starts. That's how you lose God. It doesn't start with the argument necessarily. It starts with an atmosphere, a smirk, a ridicule, a mocking voice, and Satan hasn't changed how he operates. By the way, there are legitimate responses to all of those little barbs that I threw out, uh, but that's beyond the scope of this sermon, okay? So, um, here's, here's what God wants His creations to do, is to trust Him. And that's what Satan goes after. Satan goes after God's character, saying, you can't trust God. You can't trust His love. If you obey, God will keep you down. If you submit to God, then you'll miss out. If you give in to God, (laughs) how Satan phrases it, you'll never be all you could be. So take your life into your own hands, choose for yourself, be your own authority. And verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It's the sin of pride and self-centeredness that Satan has passed into every one of our hearts And whether that's true, whether you believe or not, whether you're religious or not, whether you're moral or immoral, red or blue, male or female, young or old, no one escapes. Eichmann is in all of us. We are all the problem because we learned from the serpent not to trust God. And so, the essence of sin is not just being bad. It's not just disobeying the rules. It's to put ourselves in the place where only God should be. We put ourselves in a judgment seat. We put ourselves in a decision-making seat. And we say, you know what, God? I know me better than you know me, and so I know what's right for me. I know what's best for me, and I'm just going to do my own thing. And that's where all the misery in our life comes from. That's where genocide comes from. That's where your problems come from. If you came here unhappy this morning, that's where that comes from. Sin is not just about breaking the rules. It's about being your own savior, deciding that you can rescue yourself. And that's where Adam and Eve decided to be. By the way, Romans 1 and 2, Paul will lay this out in a beautiful way. And he will say, if you're a Gentile, (laughs) you're sinful. And if you're a Jewish person, you're no better off. No one is without sin. No one is without excuse. Eichmann is in all of us. And let's talk about and notice what this fateful decision brings about. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here's what happens because of their mutiny against God. First, they lose God. Verse 8 is probably one of the saddest verses in the Bible, probably the saddest, because uh, they heard God walking in the garden, and they hid from him. The words of verse 8 imply that this walking together was a routine. 
It was a daily occurrence that God would come down, and He had a relationship with Adam and Eve every day. He would come down, and they, He would walk, okay? I don't know if that was a physical representation or what, but He would be with them, and they would share together. They would, uh, they would be close. They would tackle life together. How was, how was your day? I was, how, I was great. How was your day? I, I named another animal. That's awesome. Okay, great. And they had a relationship, and now for the first time, when He comes, they hide. And one thing that we need to take away from that is that sin makes you dumb. <laughs> they try to hide from God, the creator of the universe. He created the trees that they're standing behind. He, he knows they're there, right? But sin makes you dumb. And the first consequence of sin is that we're cut off from God. We can never know Him like we did before. Um, and that's spiritual alienation. Sin causes us to lose God. Number two, they lose themselves. Uh, in Genesis 2.25, before the mutiny, the fall, the two are in the garden, and they are naked, and they feel no shame. That's what the writer tells us. And now they disobey. Sin has come into the world. They're still naked, but now they are worlds different psychologically. They begin to feel shame, and shame is that sense of unease that we all have with ourselves in our hearts. With God, they were naked and had no shame. Without God, they were naked and they had shame. The minute we lose God, we lose who we are. It's a sense of inadequacy. It's a sense that something is missing, and so shame comes, and self-consciousness comes, and insecurity, and anxiety, and fear, and thinking, I have to do something about this to prove that I'm okay. That's psychological alienation. When we lose God, we lose us. Third, they lose each other. They hid from God. But I want you to notice what they also did. They realized they were naked, and so they, do, they did what you do when you have that dream, you know, where you're uh, naked in front of a crowd of people. Uh, you, you try to cover up in your dream, right? And that's what they did. They had never done that before, but now there's this urge. So they, they find some fig leaves. They sew them together. They, they, they make clothes for themselves. And I, I want you to know the, the sequence here, because God isn't around yet. They're not covering up so that God won't see. They're covering up so that they won't see each other, so that they're hiding themselves from the other person. See, when you lose God, you lose your trust in Him. You also lose the ability to be transparent with the other people in your life. Suddenly, there are things to hide. Suddenly, there's a fear that if people really knew who I was, if they could really see through then they would know the truth and they would reject me. And so we put on clothes and all kinds of other things to really hide who we are. And when we lose God, we lose each other. That's social alienation. And all these build off of each other. Spiritual alienation leads to psychological alienation, which leads to social alienation, which will even lead to physical alienation because, number four, they lose the garden. God will say, because you ate and disobey. Uh, the, the ground is cursed from now on. You'll, you'll have to toil now. Work will not automatically be fulfilling anymore, and work will be hard. You'll put all of the effort that you know how to put in into something, and still out of it, you will only get thorns and thistles. That sounds a lot like my sermon preparation this week. That's, that's it. 
But what's God saying? He's saying we weren't just put here to be residents. We were put here to care for the world, to care for the earth. But when we lose God, we lose the relationship that we had with that perfect world. Without God, things don't work like they're supposed to work. We have to wear sweaters. We have to have roofs over our head. We have to have weed eaters to mow and keep the lawn. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too dry. It's too wet. There are storms. There are tornadoes. There are droughts. There are fires. There are floods. There are animals that bite. There are plants that poison. Nature is not our friend anymore. In Romans chapter 8, Paul will talk about the fact that creation is so broken that it groans like a woman in labor with a child. Any of you who have gone through that, did you take a picture of it? Say no. No, you didn't. That's physical alienation. The ultimate reality here is not just that our lawn will need mowed once a week, but that our lives, our physical lives, will end. Eat of this tree and you will die. Literally, it reads, dying you will die. See, Adam and Eve didn't die immediately. Do you notice that in the story? But what's happened is that nature has been altered and death has been introduced. You won't die immediately. But be sure it's coming for you. Dying, you will die. And I want you to see how clever Satan is here because he knows this. He knows this. He's telling Eve the truth when, she, when he says, oh, you're going you're gonna to eat that? You won't die. He's telling her the truth. But it's only a half truth because the whole truth is you won't die now, but later eventually you will. And what Satan is a master at is making promises while hiding the price tag that you have to pay. Because we're out of accord with the owner of nature, we're out of accord with nature. Nature is grinding us down. It's wearing us down. So we have poverty and famine and hunger and disease and death. That's physical alienation. We have war and racism and sexism and oppression and crime and violence and genocide. That's social alienation. We have depression, anger, bitterness, lack of uh, identity, anxiety, and self-consciousness. That's psychological alienation. And it all comes from the fact that we are hiding from God because we cannot live with God anymore because we are spiritually alienated from Him. So, where's the hope? I got to take a pause here and just say, if you shove God out of the way, if God is not a part of your picture in life, then you still have to deal with this Eichmann inside of you. You have to deal with the problem of evil somehow. And with God out of, out of the picture, there's really only two options that you have. One is to look out at all the evil in the world and say, you know what? That's not, it's not really happening. It's, there's not really evil out there. Evil is just a product of your nurture. And so, people have bad parents, and so they become bad people. And that's the reason for evil. The problem is, that doesn't match with your experience. Because we all know people who were in the perfect situation, who messed up and did heinous things. On the other hand, your other option is to say, 
all the sin in the world, all the evil in the world is there because it's a part of the system. It's inherent. You need evil to move the evolutionary process along. In order to get better, we have to kill each other. The problem is you don't want that to be your experience. Nobody does. And so in the end, you are left without hope. You have to choose one of those, and neither one of them work. Christianity is the only worldview that steps up and says, we have the reason that sin is here. It's because there's an Eichmann in all of us, but we also have hope for that, and it's found in verse 9. It's probably the verse that is the most hopeful, and it sets up the rest of the Bible. And we see in verse 9, the counselor, God, called out to the man and said to him, where are you? He comes. Everything has already gone wrong, but God comes to his people, Adam and Eve. Where are you? Was, it, was he really looking for them? Did he really, were they really good, that good at hiding? No, no, no. He knew where they were. How could he not? He created everything. Then why is he asking the question, where are you? It's because it's not a question of where, it's a question of why. What he's really asking is, why are you hiding? And the dialogue kind of goes this way. Adam, why are you hiding? What's the right answer that he should have given? Because I sinned, God. What's the answer that he gave? Well, I'm ashamed because I was naked. Why are you ashamed? That's what God says. Did you eat the tree that I told you not to eat? What's the right answer? Yes, God, I sinned. What's the answer he gave? Well, this woman that you gave me, that's the answer he gave. So he turns to the woman. Did you eat of the tree? What's the right answer? I sinned. What does the woman say? This snake, this snake. And what God is doing is he's questioning so that Adam and Eve come to their own right conclusion. He's not lecturing, he's not scolding, but he's counseling. And every good counselor knows that if you ask enough questions, people will be brought to the truth themselves. They will see their own flaws and they will own up to them. And here's God, minutes into the fall of mankind, already being the wonderful counselor. Do you know why we call him that? This is in part the reason. He's waking his people up to the gentle truth like a gentle shepherd. And the truth is this, you went your own way, you disobeyed, and the world can now never operate the same way. Death has been unleashed and you brought curses on yourself. And he turns to the serpent and he says in verse 14, you will slither for the rest of your life, uh, the rest of existence. Verse 16, he turns to the woman and says, guess what? From now on, you will say things during uh, the delivery of a child that you can't even imagine right now, let alone repeat afterwards. That's how it's going to go down. And then when you get home, you're going to have friction at home trying to define roles that you and your husband will play. He turns to the man and says, from now on, you have to plow and weed and you will have sweat. Your entire life will be about moving dirt. You will move dirt everywhere to get anything out of life. And then at the end of life, after you've moved all that dirt, somebody will move dirt on top of you because dirt is all you are. Curses. And if that's all we had, if Scripture ended there, then even Christianity would be without hope. We are all Eichmann. That's the problem. But the cure 
is also here. And can I spend just a little bit pointing it out? Genesis 3.15 is an amazing prophecy. He's talking to the serpent, doling out his consequence, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, God says to the serpent, from now on, there are going to be two lines of people in the world, two sets of offspring. And the first set of offspring is going to be offspring of the serpent. Now, does this mean there are going to be, you know, literal snake offspring? No. This means that there will be people who buy into the philosophy of the serpent. John, in John 8, Jesus confronts the religious leaders, and he says, you are just like your father, Satan, because you lie. What is that? What's the lie? That God is the enemy of your happiness. That's the lie that passes down to every heart, and we buy it, and we become the offspring of Satan by, by refusing to trust God. So, that's the first line of people. The second line of people is the offspring of the woman. And note that God does not say that from the woman will come very good people and I will work with them. He doesn't say that. What does He say? He says, I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. What does that mean? God is saying, I will take the hearts of the people who love the lies of Satan, this first group, and I will intervene and I will change their hearts so that they come to love and trust me. And this is where the prophecy lies. It's in the second line. The first part of 15 is plural. Your offspring, her offspring, two groups of people. And then suddenly, it's singular. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. And so, the prophecy is that there are two lines of people. And somewhere down one of these lines, one man will come from the woman that will crush Satan. Satan will bite at his heels, but he will deliver a death blow, a fatal wound to Satan's head. That's the prophecy. But there's a couple more levels here that I want you to go with me, okay? Derek Kidner, who is a really a guru on the Old Testament, he looks at this text and he says, it's really odd that all of the believers in the history of the world are written about as children of the woman, as offspring of Eve. The Savior to come is called the offspring of the woman. And that's odd because ancient civilizations are patriarchal. It's all about men. It's all about fathers and sons. Just go down to Genesis chapter 5. It's father, son, father, son, father, son, and on and on. Why trace the line through Eve? Shouldn't it be Adam's offspring? And add to that, verse 20, that seems to jump out of nowhere. It says this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So, we go through all of the pain of the fall, and God doles out the consequences. And the first thing Adam wants to do is name his wife. What's, what's going on there? But it makes perfect sense. He names her the mother of all living. Eve means life. 
And here it is, sin brought death into the world, and God provides a way back from death. There will be two lines, one of death, one to life, and Adam realizes that his wife Eve is the key. She is the only way back to life, as she will bear the offspring that will defeat death. So naming her life at this moment, where death has become a reality, there's nothing more fitting than that. But come with me one step further. Why is it Eve? Why not Adam's descendants? Why is it Eve's descendants that will be the one to crush the serpent? And Kidner points out that in the whole history of mankind, there's only been one human being ever that was the offspring of only a woman. And you know the story. In a couple months, we're going to celebrate it again. No man was involved. The virgin shall conceive, and the child's name will be called Emmanuel. And there's the prophecy. A woman, not a man, will bring forth a man that will reverse all of this curse by crushing the head of the serpent, Satan. A Savior will come and wrestle the serpent and defeat evil and sin and death itself. And that's why Genesis 3.15 is called the first gospel because Jesus was born of a woman. Jesus was bruised on the cross. Satan nipped at his heels as he went to a grave. But three days later, Jesus punched Satan back in the head, a fatal blow, and his lies were crushed. Paul writes this way in Romans. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. The gospel begins in the garden. Even from the beginning of the world, God sets in place a plan that He had in mind before He ever created in the garden. The serpent put a lie in your heart through a tree, and now Jesus comes, and He takes the lie out of your heart by way of a tree. There's a line that we sing in a famous Christmas carol, and it goes this way. I want you to sing it with me. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse, far as the curse is found. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. There is an Eichmann in you right now. You have been separated from God. You've been cut off. You've been hiding from Him. You've been hiding from everyone else. How will you deal with that? How will you get right with God? There is only hope that is found in a tree that God has put here for you. We went to that first tree and we all fell and we died. And God has now invited us to fall again at a second tree, the cross of Christ, and live.